0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick.
1: And it's Saturday. Time to venture into the vault. This episode originally aired on July 13th, 2017, and it is about artificial gravity.
0: Yeah, this is a really fun episode. Uh, and it's and I, th- I think it's a great one to, uh, to re-air here as our last vault episode of 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it gets into various models for how we could conceivably carry out artificial gravity uh, aboard us, uh, some sort of an artificial vessel.
1: Now, why did you think this would be a great last vault episode
0: of the year? Is that that you expect to
1: be floating around the end of December or what?
0: Mm, well, yeah, I guess, you know, you're at New Year's Eve celebrations, everybody's going to feel a little floaty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> feel yourself, uh, or maybe you're going to feel more drawn to the earth. I hope everyone's going to feel a little lighter. <laughs> you need some centrifugal anchoring. Yeah, that's the other thing. People are, may very well feel like they've been spun around in some sort of uh, human concoction and, uh, and are struggling to, uh, to keep their feet underneath them.
1: That's going to be the new uh, trendy hangover cure. Just get inside your high-efficiency washing machine.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is a great episode. We get to talk about a number of uh, uh, sci-fi properties. Uh, we talk a little bit about uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hey, everyone, enjoy, and we'll uh, catch you on the other side. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe
1: McCormick. And Robert, I know that many times you must have imagined what life is like in a zero-gravity environment,
0: right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you can't help... (laughs) <laughs> well, you, you can't help thinking about it as you read about space exploration and and uh, engage with, with various science fiction scenarios. What what would it be like to, to float free uh, inside of a capsule?
1: Yeah. And people obviously imagine the, the very simple stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You know, floating from one end of the room to the other, not being able to walk normally, maybe fear that you would experience some motion sickness. You know, many, many people who go to space, I think, at least half, I think, is the number experience some kind of space adaptation mm-hmm. problem, space sickness. Once they arrive, that might go away after some time.
0: Yeah, or you tend to focus on the amazing and the horrible ideas. Like, you know, for instance, how fun it would be to drink uh, orange juice in space by chasing the globs around the the capsule or the more, you know, the definitely horrible or, or almost horrible scenarios such as, of course, uh, you know, the... Uh, bone mass, uh, density loss, as well as <laughs> the, the, the problem of trying to poop in a toilet. Right. I thought you were going to immediately
1: go to using the bathroom. I was space. immediately
0: going to go to the bathroom and then I thought I should I should reference like the really p- pivotal problem here uh, as opposed uh, to just the the one that is difficult.
1: No, I mean going to the bathroom isn't necessarily a big problem. You know, you it, it might not sound all that appealing to essentially poop into a vacuum cleaner. But, mm-hmm. Or a bag, yeah. You know, a lot of people, it, maybe that's something they've always wanted to try out out. It, it's not necessarily a horrible idea, but it will definitely be horrible, I don't know, if you make a mistake in this process. Right. That's
0: where the, the horror stories kick in, is when the the, the super expensive space toilet uh, malfunctions.
1: The same thing, of course, is true – well, not exactly the same thing. A similar thing is true of – you mentioned chasing orange juice globules with your mouth to, mm-hmm. to hunt them down. But – Eating in space. I mean, we depend on gravity so much for a lot of our eating activity, keeping food in a container. I mean, you you just can't compose dishes in space. You've got to, again, kind of like you poop into a bag. You've got to eat out of a bag. Right. Um, or have something that's relatively solid and doesn't have crumbs that are going to get everywhere. I mean, can you think about trying to salt your food in space? You'd, you'd sort of need to like salt into a bag and shake it up or something.
0: Yeah, or just have like a hot sauce packet that you, you add into your own mouth uh, afterwards. I, I feel like I could get by in a number of – Like bagged curries and whatnot.
1: Yeah. Now, of course, another thing astronauts report about zero-gravity environments is that your sense of taste is all jammed up. Like Mm -hmm. you you can't taste things the way you normally would. And part of this probably has to do with the fluid redistribution in your body that leads your head and upper body to swell because you don't have the normal gravity pulling all the fluids in your body towards your feet, which your body is naturally – trying to overcompensate for.
0: Another uh, gravity tidbit that, that I always find fascinating is that uh, – I believe Mary Roach pointed this out in her book, Packing for Mars. If you're in a, a, a microgravity, a zero gravity environment, your bladder doesn't fill up from the bottom up. Oh, it uh, feels like in the center. Right. It fills like all around towards the very center. So you don't realize that you need to urinate Typically, until you're absolutely about to (laughs) burst, because because we have evolved to sense the to detect the, the need for our own urination. On a gravity envi- in a gravity environment, on a on a world with gravity, we are creatures of gravity.
1: It, it reminds me of a piece of terminology I haven't really thought of since elementary school. But back then, there would be a thing that would be like a P quote emergency. Mm-hmm. You remember the emergency? Oh yeah. Well, I, I have, mean, I guess if you have kids, there's oh, such yeah. a thing as an emergency. Yeah,
0: I have a five year old uh, son, and so he has these where it's like suddenly it's super dire. Like you have, he has to like run outside if the front door is closer to him, uh, you know, grabbing (laughs) himself the whole time and going, I got to go pee Uh and then immediately peeing. Um, this is the kind of thing adults tend not to experience unless perhaps you go into space right so those are the
1: the uh, less dire things now you already alluded to of course the deterioration of body tissues mm-hmm. uh, loss of bone density loss of muscle mass and 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 all the different negative consequences that happen to the body under zero gravity or microgravity conditions uh, these things can really stack up and it's not a trivial effect Astron- Astronauts have to exercise constantly when they're in microgravity environments. They've got to spend hours a day working out in these weird machines Mm -hmm. just to try to offset some of the damage that's being done to their bodies by the lack of gravity in their environment. And it's still not enough. I mean, they still come back to to Earth messed up and they need time to uh, reacclimate. Hopefully, they will eventually come back to something like full health. But, uh, but it's not good for you.
0: Yeah. And, and of course, one of the, the problems is that uh, astronauts want to go back to space. So they're not necessarily going to be as forthcoming about, the, about how they're exactly feeling.
1: Yeah, I guess that is a thing to worry about. You'd hope that they'd be accurately reporting how bad it is, but maybe they just they want to get back up there.
0: Yeah, I mean that that's that's what I've I've heard is that generally speaking, and you don't go to space then and then you're then you're like oh well, that's enough of that I, I'm good. No, an astronaut, a person that's worth their whole life to do this for, not even just to do this, but for the chance of doing this. Of course, they're going to want to go back.
1: So, my question is, why don't the people who run the ISS, I don't know, whoever they are, NASA, I guess, (laughs) maybe not NASA, I don't know, space agencies around the world, Uh, why don't the people who run our space stations just take advantage of the Holtzman effect and put (laughs) some gravity plating in there so that you can walk around like a normal Earth human?
0: Ah, yeah. So, yeah, you're, you're drawing in... Both Star Trek and Dune here, okay. Uh, but they're they're both prime examples because we're straight into the blender, right? Yeah, <laughs> because this is a this is one of the the key aspects of our science fiction when it comes to gravity or lack of gravity in space. There are basically three models. Mm-hmm. Either you're gonna you're gonna try and go hard science and have some sort of an artificial gravity scenario, like some of the realistic scenarios we're going to discuss in this podcast. Mm-hmm. You're gonna just go. You know, microgravity zero G and have people floating around, which, of course, can be difficult from a special effects standpoint. Mm -hmm. Or you're going to go space wizards. Yeah. You're just going to go magic artificial gravity and just say, hey, we – it's Star Trek. We have gravity plates in the floor. Of course there's gravity. Uh, <laughs> it's the um, – in 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 Dune, you have the, the Holtzman effect generated by the Holtzman fuel generator. And uh, Herbert never explained exactly what it was or how it worked, but it allowed for the generation of anti-gravity, faster-than-light travel, personal shields, artificial gravity on ships. You know, all the things you need to sort of go ahead and establish your interstellar uh, – Uh, uh, empire and then tell the stories you want to tell.
1: You know, I'm okay with that because in lots of science fiction stories, essentially they're they're trying to tell a character drama or it's a fantasy story set in space. Mm -hmm. I don't need all science fiction to be hard science fiction. Yeah. But I really do appreciate hard science fiction that tries to take the physics that we know seriously. This does not, but that's okay. You know, it's doing its own thing.
0: Yeah, I mean Her- Herbert had areas that he was definitely going to focus in on such as uh, ecological issues, uh, philosophical, religious, cultural issues, and of course the, this, the, the drama that especially is seen in the first book. Yeah. So, so, so I'm I, I cut him some slack.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm fine with some magic anti-gravity.
0: Now, in terms of sci-fi properties that do take it really seriously, what are what are a few films that come to mind?
1: Well, of course you you immediately think of two thousand and one a Space mm-hmm. Odyssey. Now that's got multiple spacecraft. Uh, there's a space station and there's a spacecraft that both use something we're going to talk about later in the episode uh, rotational uh, structures for centripetal force driven or centrifugal centrifugal or centripetal force driven. Uh, artificial gravity scenarios. Also, there is a good artificial gravity ship in The Martian, mm-hmm. uh, and I remember I think there's one in a space station in Interstellar, isn't there?
0: Yes, I do believe. Uh, I remember the, the spinning uh, situation. And I also want to point out uh, James S. A. Corey's Expanse series, both the uh, the books uh, and the sci-fi TV show, mm-hmm. which uh, which does a I think a really good job of of going after sort of near future interplanetary culture and technology, mm-hmm. and uh, it's also the only sci-fi property that I can think of that uh, that actually explores one of the anti-gravity schemes that we're going we're to be discussing today, linear acceleration. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, linear acceleration, I can see why that's limited because it has sort of uh, limited applicability if you're going to try to be real about – like it, it only works in certain types of ships doing certain types of things. To a certain extent.
0: Uh, we, yeah. can, we can chat about this this, this later. But, oh, okay. Uh, well, correct me. Correct <laughs> well, I don't me. know. If it, well, it's not really a correction. But mm-hmm. I think one of the problems is that uh, linear acceleration model calls for a spaceship that is not a seagoing vessel transported into space. Mm-hmm. Because I, as I said before in the, the, the program, I think a lot of our science fiction and our sci-fi ships are essentially seagoing vessels and tales of seagoing vessels and uh-huh. seagoing captains. uh Taken from Earth and, and and transposed into space. I mean, that was basically Gene Roddenberry's uh, uh whole deal with Star Trek. That right. it was um was it the the Master and Commander books that he was in no, it was a different one. Um, eh, I can't remember the the series offhand. But anyway, he was inspired by by literary tales of uh of, of adventurous uh humans at sea. Moby Dick. Uh, no, <laughs> well, maybe I don't know. Well, I guess Wrath of Khan is Wrath Moby of Khan Dick. is yeah. yeah. From Hell's Heart, I stab at thee, right? Yeah, but it's it's more difficult with linear acceleration because you have to you have to take that concept of an Earth vessel and you really have to literally turn it on its side. You have to think instead of a ship going from port to port and stopping. You have to think about long continuous journeys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll get into all that in a bit. Okay. Well, I guess we should
1: first just take a real quick look at what is the problem. With artificial gravity, with generating gravity in space. Why can't you just do it? <laughs> Well, I mean – so gravity is something that is a field generated by – generally we think of it as mass. It's generated by the stuff in the universe, energy and mass, you know, much more by matter that has mass. So we all know that objects that have mass have a mutual attractive force. They tend to attract one another. And, you know, we've known this for a long time. It was – the laws of gravitation were to a certain extent well explained by Newton in the 17th century. And he basically described the laws of gravitation in a way that that makes sense for most of the stuff we're going to be looking at, right, for planets, for spaceships, for things like that. Now, of course, uh, later Albert Einstein revolutionized our understanding of what gravity is by telling us that gravity is the curvature of space-time and that sort of matter tells space-time how to curve and that the curvature of space-time tells matter how to
0: move. Right. So, let's start with mass because I think that's the that's that's the, the essential part that's that's uh, pretty easy to understand here. So, everything with mass from a dust moat to a star exerts a gravitational pull. Mm-hmm. The strength of the pull, however, increases with mass in proximity to the object. So, a smaller object can only attract uh, another small object if it's nearby, but a large object can pull in objects uh, from across a vast distance. Right. And this is kind of – This is key to the structure, uh, uh, much of the structure of our our universe. I mean, this is how uh, accretion occurs with little specks of space dust and gas forming together and snowballing into larger cosmic bodies.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is how our solar system was created was the coalescing of objects by the force of gravity. Things are attracted to each other eventually becoming stars,
0: planets, all that. Yeah, and then uh, Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity comes along and proposes that gravity is a curve in the fourth dimension of space-time. And there's proof to back him up. Given sufficient mass, an object can cause an otherwise straight beam of light to curve. Mm -hmm. Astronomers call this effect gravitational lensing.
1: Yeah, this was shown experimentally. It was one of the first big experimental uh, proofs of of Einstein's theory of relativity is that you could see uh, light from stars passing behind the sun, Mm -hmm. bending as it came right around around the sun so you know if you could uh, have a solar eclipse and shield out the light from the sun you could see stars in the background being warped by the sun's gravity as the beams of light passed close to our sun
0: yeah, and similarly, the, the the less gravity there is, the slower time passes. And this is a phenomenon known as uh, gravitational time dilation. Yeah. And this, is, this is less key to what we're talking about, but it just drives home like the place of gravity uh, in our universe.
1: Yeah, it sounds – this is one of those things that sounds like fantasy, but it's absolutely true. And mm-hmm. you saw that – we mentioned the movie Interstellar earlier. There's actually uh, – there are a couple of great scenes in it that demonstrate this where they go down to a planet with an incredibly high gravitational pull – And uh, while they're down there on the planet, much less time passes for the people on the planet than passes for people in orbit farther
0: away. Yeah. uh, As uh, physicist Paul Davies points out, time runs a little bit faster in space than it does down on Earth. It runs a little faster on the roof than it does in the basement. (laughs) And that's a measurable effect. Then's the basics on gravity. Right. Uh, But then there's also this additional area of quantum gravitation Mm -hmm. and uh, the idea that – That there is a, there's a hypothetical particle, the graviton. Uh, which in theory could cause objects to be attracted to one another.
1: Yeah, and this would be the mediating particle of the force of gravity. In the same way you've got like the electromagnetic force, the mediating particle there is the photon. Hypothetically, you'd have some mediating particle delivering the force of gravity, but we've never seen gravitons in the universe.
0: Right. This is the, this whole hypothesis comes together because quantum theory, to refresh, addresses how the universe works at the smallest subatomic levels. And the resulting uh, model here does not explain gravity. So gravitons uh, and the the theory of quantum gravity is an attempt to reconcile general relativity with quantum theory. It's uh, basically an attempt to uh, patch up a hole in the standard model of particle physics which cannot explain gravity.
1: Now, the last time I read seriously about gravitons was a few years ago. I wonder if any recent uh, experiments in our particle colliders have – have shed any light on that. I mean, are are physicists now thinking gravitons are
0: more likely or less likely? So, well, we certainly don't have any definitive proof on the matter yet. But I guess for the purposes of our discussion here, since we don't have proof of gravitons, we can't really come up with a scheme to employ them or manipulate them in some way that would give us artificial gravity.
1: Yeah. So I guess the point of our bringing up gravitons is that you can't just wave a magic wand and say, aha, gravitons will be the thing we use to create artificial gravity in space. I mean, we don't know if they exist. If they do exist, I'm not sure anybody has a coherent idea of how they could be harnessed Mm -hmm. to provide uh, artificial gravity in space. It just seems like... I don't know it, what is so if they're generated by mass, would you not need mass to generate them?
0: Yeah, I could. I looked around in my research and I couldn't find any like any real theories about how gravitons, if they exist, might be utilized in this fashion. And I'm not sh- I'm not aware of any science fiction that explores the possibility. But I would love to know about it.
1: I, I think it, when it does, it's more just the kind of it's the hand waving magic, right? So we come back
0: to mass then. Yeah. You could, I guess, have a spaceship that's as massive as the Earth, hey, and then that would have uh, that would give you the the, uh, the gravitational pull you would need. That's
1: not exactly a terrible idea, and it's not unexplored. I mean, there have been these ideas, for example, in you know stellar engineering projects mm-hmm. that say, "Hey, so let's say we want to travel to another solar system." Wouldn't it be easier, instead of trying to build an arc ship to take us there, to see if we can build a structure around the sun that will reflect some of its radiation and allow us to steer the movement of the entire solar system?
0: Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, just move the the solar system. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, so, like, the solar system becomes our spaceship. You, mm-hmm. you could build these things called a, a, a hypothetical structure called a Shkadov thruster.
0: Mm-hmm. Essentially, it would just drive the sun. Yeah, that actually features into uh, no surprise an in and Banks' book. Oh yeah, uh, but I'm not going to say which one because it's kind of uh, it, it's kind of a spoiler. Oh okay, <laughs> but it's one of them. Leave it. Leave it there. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that
1: is one idea, though. If you wanted to travel through space on an object that has Earth gravity, you could just take Earth with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it wouldn't really make sense to say, "Well, I want to build a spaceship that generates Earth gravity through natural mass generating effects." Uh, because then you would just be building a spaceship the mass of Earth,
0: right? And if you can do that, <laughs> yeah, then uh, I mean you're already you're already a pretty powerful uh, uh, civilization. I'm not sure where you would rank on the Kardashev scale, but yeah, you'd be uh, you'd be potent. You, that'd be sure.
1: definitely a Kardashev one, maybe yeah. a Kardashev two.
0: All right, so we've talked about these scenarios uh, involving uh, natural gravity and the, and the idea of manipulating natural gravitational forces. Luckily, we're not uh, we're not forced to contend only with those. We can also deal with artificial gravity, not in a magic sense, but in a uh, but in a, a, a real sense.
1: Yeah, and in this way, uh, there are ways to generate artificial gravity that are not hypothetical or speculative at all. I mean, this is totally easy, standard, settled physics mm-hmm. because one of the insights of modern physics is that gravity is, in fact, indistinguishable from acceleration. When you're being pulled toward a planet's center and the planet has a mass such that it generates a surface gravity of 9.8 meters per second per second, which is what Earth's surface gravity is, mm-hmm. one or, g. Right. Or whether you're accelerating through space at an acceleration rate of 9.8 meters per second per second, the effect you experience is exactly the same. You can't tell the difference between these two situations. And so knowing this, we could turn the idea of acceleration to our advantage.
0: And that's where our first model comes into play. But first, we're going to take a quick break. (laughs) All right, we're back. So the first model of artificial gravity we're going to discuss here is the one that I alluded to earlier in discussing The Expanse mm-hmm. and one that I think by and large – I could not think of a, another single science fiction property that employs this as their artificial gravity on a spaceship. Uh, but yeah, linear acceleration.
1: I can't really think of,
0: of many that do. But so what's the basic idea here, Robert? All right. So – if you've ever uh, ridden on a roller coaster and felt yourself uh, plastered to the back of the seat then you've experienced some of the power here mm-hmm. if you were in a fighter jet and you were uh, you know traveling at, at, at sufficient speed to pull you know multiple G's you're you're also experiencing this as you're pushed back into the chair right so if you can imagine being in that fighter jet mm-hmm. and
1: you're being pulled back into your chair except Instead of going back into your chair, you put your feet on the chair Uh and put your head in the direction that the fighter jet is going, and the acceleration rate of that fighter jet is 9.8 meters per second per second, it would suddenly feel a lot like it feels to stand on the ground.
0: Right. Imagine a a skyscraper as a rocket ship. Imagine it uh, blasting through space at such a speed that the G-force equaled the pull of Earth's gravity on the internal environment. I'm actually going to read a couple of quick quotes from uh, James S. A. Corey's uh, uh, First Expanse novel because I believe that these really capture what we're talking about. Okay. So he's describing the Donager uh, spaceship here. Quote, like all long flight spacecraft, it was built in the office tower configuration. Each deck, one floor of the building, ladders or elevators running down the axis. Constant thrust took the place of gravity. Now, there's also a Mormon generation ship uh, uh, in the book that uses both linear thrust and a rotating wheel, which we'll get into. And this is the description for it. Each compartment within the massive rings was built on a swivel system that allowed the chambers to reorient to thrust gravity when the ring stopped spinning and the station flew to its next work location.
1: Okay, So by describing these ships with floors like Mm -hmm. an office building, what what you should really picture is like you've got a skyscraper. And it's flying through space with the top of the skyscraper as the front, right. the nose of the ship. And all of the floors are where your feet would be toward the back of the ship and your head would be facing the front of
0: the ship. Right. It's, it's, it's taking the whole it's like Starship Enterprise uh, situation and turning it sideways. If you imagine the Starship Enterprise flying in such a way that the top of the ship is the front of the ship, I realize this gets complicated when you're talking about outer space. Right. But you're you're taking – and, and that's part of the problem. Like we we understand uh, the movement of things in our situational uh, 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 positioning in a gravity-rich world. And when we, we try and take it out of that, it's, it's kind of hard to picture some of these uh, these situations.
1: Right. But yeah, so if this is taking place in space, you would be able to generate a force toward the floor that simulates Earth gravity. Right. Now, this would – This would have some complications, I'm imagining. Yes. Because in order to perfectly simulate Earth gravity, maybe you don't care how perfect it is, but if the goal was to perfectly simulate Earth gravity, you would need to be constantly accelerating at 9.8 meters per second per second. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of constant acceleration. You're always going that much faster –
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, we we see the required propulsion uh, at work when a chemical rocket creates enough thrust to to counter Earth's gravitational pull and achieve escape velocity, but they're only achieving it for a you know, matter of seconds or minutes. Right. For our spaceship here, our theoretical spaceship, our office building on its side, uh, you'd need something more constant. So to, just to refresh on the Gs here, standing on the Earth, you'd experience one G. In free fall, say in an elevator or the Vomit Comet – uh, you'd experience zero G. At 2G, you feel twice as heavy. So you'd need a spaceship capable of propelling you fast enough, like you said, to exert a constant 1G. Yeah. So one of the uh, the sources we turned to for this was, uh, is a, it's a wonderful 2007 book, Artificial Gravity, edited by Giles Clement and uh, Anjali Buckley. And uh, there's an article in there by Buckley, uh, Clement, and William uh, Pulaski of NASA's uh, Johnson Space Center. And uh, they point out that a spaceship could, in theory, accelerate for the first half of a Mars journey, then decelerate on the second half, and in doing so, maintain 1G and reach Mars in two to five days, depending on the distance.
1: I mean, that would be—you'd <laughs> y- have to have incredible power. You yes. Know, incredible thrust to, like, uh, powerful fuel to accelerate that much. Also, I'm at, at how? Do, so do they explain how you do the flip-over— You'd have to be accelerating one g the enti- like half the way there, right? Uh-huh. And then you'd have to be decelerating at one g the other half of the way there, which means I guess you'd have to flip the spaceship around so that the floor stays the floor.
0: Yeah, or you'd have to have some sort of like an internal habitat that's like a capsule on a uh, that rotates. I yeah,
1: would imagine. or yeah, I
0: guess you could have a, a spaceship where the floors and ceilings are both uh, can both work as floors, right? And of course, the the distance here involved. Uh, not to go into the the Mars opposition uh, details here too much, but uh, the maximum distance between these two planets is uh, two hundred and fifty million miles, with the sun between the two. So I guess that's not doable in two to five days. Yeah, uh, I would assume you would not try and make the journey there. Unless, I mean, but but if you're achieving speeds like that, then it. You know, maybe you'd go. You'd go for it. Uh, be, but uh, the the average distance is more like one hundred and forty million miles, and the closest possible distance is a tantalizing thirty three point nine million miles. But anyway, that's this is the the basic, yeah. But yeah, you would need to have uh some pretty awesome power at your disposal, so awesome that I believe in in the Expanse books, like they basically can't the the authors who publishes as, as, as James S.A. Corey, uh, they had to sort of create their own um, fictionalized propulsion right. breakthrough to make that possible.
1: Here's where you need the magic in this right. version. <laughs> yeah. Instead of having magic gravity plating, you have magic propulsion.
0: I guess this is the, the, the case with a lot of sci-fi. Like right. you, you – uh, there's a certain place you you want human uh, civilization and or alien civilizations to be at, you know, to be able mm. to discuss them and look at the ramifications. But yeah, we don't have all the steps worked out about how we'd get there. There's, there are certain breakthroughs that would need to take place and you could explore them and try and come up with some sort of, uh, uh, you know, complex uh, physics-based theory or you could just, you know, Put a post-it note there and and maybe write magic on it.
1: Yeah, even in a lot of so-called hard sci-fi or mostly hard sci-fi, you know, you've got like a list of steps in how something is achieved. Mm -hmm. And most of the steps are something that's scientifically rigorous. But one of the steps in the middle is like here's a magical element.
0: I mean, it's kind of like with a lot of uh, speculative properties Mm -hmm. that I enjoy. Sometimes there'll be something completely ridiculous, uh, something completely magical. But then you discuss all the real world ways it might play out. Like one example that comes to mind uh, is uh, World War Z, you know, the zombie uh, book. Okay. Uh, Not so much the movie, but the the book looked at at some possible ideas for how this would play out like culturally and uh, politically Mm -hmm. uh, without really getting bogged down in the fact that zombies are – are kind of a dumb idea and can't actually exist. Yeah. But it's like, roll with me. Zombies are real. Let's discuss how this might work.
1: Oh, I, I, I want to defend zombies just a little bit. There are different <laughs> types of zombie scenarios, and That's some true. some are much more plausible than others. Reanimated corpses, nah. But you know, rage zombies, yeah. some kind of weird virus. Okay,
0: maybe. Okay, all right. Yeah, I mean, we have rabies. I mean, we don't have rabies, but there is rabies. You never know. <laughs> All right, so you're probably wondering, okay, we've established how this would work. We've talked a little about the sci-fi, but what kind of work has actually gone into testing it? Yeah. Well, there have been at least a couple of experiments. The European Space Agency, ESA, experimented with this in 1985 on the Space Lab D1. Now, I, I couldn't find an image of it, but I'm assuming it's, it's the same sled or one similar uh, that was used in a 1981 experiment, or they were, you know, messing with it in 1981. It's basically this... This chair on a if you okay imagine a a short train track that you could fit in a room and then you have a chair on it. I'm glad you, chair- <laughs> I'm glad you've provided this picture Robert this is crazy. <laughs> it is it looks crazy. There's a so there's a imagine a little train uh-huh. on a little train car and there's a chair on it and the chair swivels mm-hmm. and you have somebody strapped into the chair with a bunch of uh you know electronic doodads connected to them. And then they would uh they would essentially like fly back and forth on this uh, little train track with the uh, with the seat swiveling along the way. It's a very Terry Gilliam contraption, isn't it? Yes, it, it does. It looks very Terry Gilliam. Now, they, they tried this out, and at peak speeds, it only provided 0.2 g. And uh, according to Clement and company, the threshold for the perception of linear acceleration in humans is on the order of 0.007 g, and the threshold for humans in space seems to be more like uh, between somewhere between 0.22 and 0.5g.
1: Yeah, I've got some notes about that later on about w- what exactly would be tolerable mm-hmm. as artificial gravity, but I don't know, maybe 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 you're getting to it right now. So uh, you, the, the idea here is that you wouldn't necessarily have to have one full G in order to counteract some of the worst effects of microgravity.
0: Yeah, it like, kind of comes down to what are you looking to do? Are you looking to, to to counteract the effects of microgravity to a certain extent to like just get you there a little bit? Mm-hmm. Or have like a perfect Earth simulation. Right. Do you want to, um, you know, awaken a, a coma patient aboard your spaceship and trick them into thinking that they're still on Earth? Right. Like that's a, That trick scenario I mean maybe you could do it by telling them that they're uh, they're they're nauseous or something i don't know mm-hmm. um, they have they have some sort of illness but uh, yeah, you've got an inner ear problem yeah uh, gravity's normal Yeah, as uh, Clement and company point out in the article, quote, perhaps it is not necessary to perceive artificial gravity at the cognitive level for it to be effective as a countermeasure. However, for purposes of defining the comfort zone of astronauts in artificial gravity environments, whether it's a rotating spacecraft or an onboard centrifuge, it would be extremely useful to determine the threshold value of perceived artificial gravity. Unfortunately, there are no plans to put a human centrifuge onboard the ISS, at least in the near term. So... When it comes to Gs, uh, you know, Mars is 0.376 Gs. Neptune is 1.14 g's. Saturn is 1.07 g's. Guess you're not going to be standing on the surfaces of Neptune or Saturn. Right. But we have stood on the the surface of the Moon, yeah. which is 0. 0.16 g's. And uh, Clement and company point out that when astronauts visited the Moon, they had trouble figuring out which way it was up and down. They didn't. They didn't perceive a 4.5 degree floor tilt in, in their landing unit during uh, Apollo 11. Yeah, can you imagine that? Like you're you're on a slope, but the gravity is so weak you can't you don't get that you're on a slope like right. you can't feel it and then when they're bouncing around out there on the lunar surface uh, there were a lot of stumbles and a number of these stemmed uh, from the inability to evaluate terrain slope
1: yeah again like you can't tell the difference between uphill and downhill it's
0: hard to imagine yeah
1: and yet I mean the moon gravity is perfectly enough to keep you tethered to the surface of the moon you're not going to fly away or anything right
0: yeah you're not going to leap up and achieve um, you know uh, escape velocity yeah now, there is another study, and this is actually a, a, a proposed study uh, currently, and this is the, uh, the NASA-funded uh, Turbolift. The Turbolator. Yeah, <laughs> and this, uh, the idea here is that to combat the effects of microgravity by accelerating an astronaut literally at 1G for, uh, what, around a one second, and then it's rotated uh, 180 degrees to prepare for a 1G deceleration. It's kind of like being shaken up in a cocktail shaker. Uh, and only your legs always point in the direction of the shake. It, it would theoretically, according to the 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 proposers here, uh feel like bouncing on a trampoline.
1: So this would be a suggestion not for a a habitable environment or from a for a spaceship, but maybe for es- essentially some kind of exercise machine. Is that what we're thinking?
0: Like, yeah, that that's what that's what I'm I'm getting from this is that said quote, the intermittent loading is intended to reduce or eliminate the physiological deconditioning in a comprehensive multi-system manner. It would be it would be a situation where like, hey, uh, Joe, I know you've got stuff to do on the mm-hmm. spaceship, but it's time for your uh, your 1G treatment. You need to uh-huh. climb in the capsule here and we're going to shoot you back and forth <laughs> for, for however long uh, your treatment lasts. The flipping bullet. Yeah. Uh,
1: now, this does indicate that there are these two very different schools of thought about what to do when generating artificial gravity. Uh, I guess we sort of alluded to this a minute ago, but – You still should keep in mind this question of what is the goal? Is the goal just to have an environment you can go into often enough to offset some of the negative health effects of being in space? Mm -hmm. Is it just a sort of like tiny gym for your body to stay healthy Or are you actually trying to create an environment where some of the effects of Earth gravity are simulated for normal living purposes so you can salt your food, so you can go to the bathroom without pooping into a vacuum cleaner?
0: Yeah. Now, I I do have to say that um, I can't help but think that this uh, this jumper scenario, this turbo lift scenario, I could see it working if you had somebody in a hibernation state or some sort of suspended animation. Mm. Like maybe you load their – their sickle into one of these and shoot them back and forth to uh, to keep their to to avoid any uh, debilitating effects uh, involved with their space travel. But of course, for that to work, you have to have some sort of hibernation um, technique worked out, and that's a, a whole that's a whole another uh, podcast topic. Yeah. Now, in terms of complications with this linear uh, model here of artificial gravity, you of course. You have to be in motion. You have to be able to produce that effect. Uh, You have to always be on your way somewhere or taking a roundabout way to continue the effect. But I'm not sure if that's such a detriment because after all, space is big, the distance between – planets but certainly between stars is vast and there's plenty of room to to run around out there
1: well yeah I mean if you actually want to travel to say another star system and not mm-hmm. just say to Mars but if you want to go to Alpha Centauri or wherever I mean as much acceleration as possible is good yeah uh it's still I guess I have the question about what the propulsion idea is like how do you constantly generate that much acceleration exactly yeah. I guess with some models, you have these ideas of like, uh, you know, kind of like beamed propulsion back from Earth where you line – you know, like you line up this payload
0: delivery of energy. Mm -hmm. Um, That's right. That's what we have in uh, Blindside, the novel that uh, you just finished uh, reading and I'm currently reading. Yeah. I mean the whole thing about this is –
1: this seems like a method that would work Mm -hmm. and would be very interesting. Um, But I guess it's just waiting on some kind of abundance of energy and propulsion technology and the – than the means to use it or the opportunity to use it.
0: All right. Well, that's linear acceleration for you. That's one model. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, we are going to dive into the the much more popular artificial gravity scheme, the one that you see in the movies. And that, of course, is the the spinning habitats, the the, the torus, the standard torus, the double torus, uh, all these different models. We're, of course, talking about uh, the manipulation of centripetal force. All right. We're back. So, Robert,
1: you've seen 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, yeah. One of my favorites. And so if you've seen that movie, you've seen at least a couple different versions of the design for artificial gravity that exploits centripetal force or centrifugal force. I'll talk about the difference between them in a minute. Now, one example in the movie is this giant space station called Space Station 5, V for five, and it's shaped like a wagon wheel, and the other is this round module. It's a spherical module within the spaceship uh, that Hal controls in the movie, the spaceship, the Discovery One, which is the one that's on the way to – I think it's Jupiter in the movie and Saturn in the book. Is that
0: right? I believe so. Yeah, this is the one that looks like really round in the front and long in the back. Right. And so uh, in this crew module – in the Discovery
1: 1 in the movie, you see a gravity-like effect pulling passengers to the floor along the equator of this compartment. So we can see the effect in this one scene where Frank Poole, the astronaut, is jogging in full circles around the inside wall of the sphere. So he's jogging laps, but he's not jogging horizontal laps. He's jogging full circular orbital
0: laps. Yeah, I'd say it's one of it's, it's one of if not like the greatest sequence in a science fiction film. It's just so beautiful and, 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 and thought-provoking.
1: So there are multiple ways that you could set something like this up and I'll explore a few of those models in a minute. But the basic idea is that you create a spinning structure within your spacecraft and the outside edge of the spinning environment becomes a floor that pushes up against your feet – The same way the ground pushes up against your feet as you are attracted steadily towards the center of the earth. So, in other words, it simulates the effect of gravity. Now, like linear acceleration that we just talked about, rotation-based gravity also relies on the pseudo-force sensation generated by inertia to simulate gravity. It's your body's inertia – Feeling like the gravitational force that pulls you toward the center of the earth. Uh, now, in the case of the spinning uh, model, this is known as centrifugal force uh, or the centrifugal pseudo force. Now there are two terms that are easy to get confused here: centripetal force and centrifugal force. Uh, centripetal force is is the real force in physics, and this is uh, really they're two sides of the same coin. So centripetal force is something that you will notice if you've ever done the old experiment. You know the thing you do when you're a kid is you get a bucket of water oh, yes. and you spin it around in a vertical circle. So that at the top of the circle, your bucket's upside down, but the water stays in the bucket. Mm-hmm. doesn't fall out like it would if you just held the bucket upside down. And you, you realize intuitively something's going on there about the force of your swinging motion with your arm. For some reason, it being at the top of a circular motion keeps the water in the bucket in a way that just turning the bucket upside down in the same place wouldn't. And so what that is is the centripetal force of the bucket – pushing down on the water to hold it in while the inertia of the water flying in this circular motion wants it to fly off in a tangential pattern uh, in a tangent going straight out from the path it's flying along. So you can think about it sort of like anytime something is is flying around in a circular motion, say a, a space station is orbiting the earth, what it really wants to do is keep traveling in a straight line forever, Right. So if you've got the ISS, it's orbiting the Earth. What what it wants to do if there were suddenly no Earth is just travel straight ahead. Mm -hmm. So it just keep going off into space. But what the Earth does is it exerts a certain amount of force pulling that – the space station down towards its center of gravity and curving its path. And the same thing happens when you've got an object swinging in a circular path but contained by some kind of physical structure or force like your arm and the bucket holding the water in place. Now, uh, so so the centripetal force is the inward force that pulls everything toward the center of motion in a circular pattern. The centrifugal force, sometimes referred to as a pseudo force, because it's really just inertia in a moving reference frame. That's the apparent force that acts on an object moving in a circular path to push it outward from the center around which it rotates. And this would be taking the place of the gravity that actually pulls your feet toward the ground on Earth. Now you can also feel the intuitive physics of this uh, on your body, just in your imagination. If you you ever done the carnival ride, Robert? Oh yes. Where you get on the what is it? The the cyclotron, the gravitron. It's the thing where they put you in a cage, Mm -hmm. and your back is against the wall, and it's this big disc where everybody's back is against the inside wall of the disc. And then it starts spinning you around very fast and suddenly you're just pinned to the back wall. You can't lift your arms up uh, and you, it's it's all this force that's that, that wants to throw you off into space. But in fact, there's a wall there stopping you. So instead of being thrown off into space, you're just pinned to the wall.
0: Yeah, that's a Carnival Death Machine that I've probably only uh, ridden once. But, <laughs> but I have ridden – the similar device and that is, of course, the, the like the pirate swinging ship, you know? Oh, OK. It kind yeah. of has a similar, similar effect as the bucket scenario.
1: If the pirate swinging ship were to go all the way around, I instead of just – I think sometimes they do. Not oh, the really? Ones,
0: not the ones I ride, but <laughs>
1: – Oh, Interesting. <laughs> Uh, well, it's also – yeah, this, the centripetal and centrifugal force, is the same thing also that allows you in a roller coaster to go around a loop. OK. You know, I roller coasters that, yeah. that have loops uh, because the, the force that's keeping you – you know, you, you want, your body wants to continue on a straight line as it gets to the top of the loop and just be flung off up into the sky. Mm-hmm. But instead, you've got that roller coaster there holding you. So instead, you're pressed down into your seat, which is actually straight up from the ground. Um, and so the same thing you can imagine could happen in space. If you've got a space environment and you're on a thing that's spinning, you know that you will experience some kind of force pinning you to the outside wall of that spinning structure uh, in the same way as, as the bucket of water and the loop-de-loop on the uh, roller coaster – So then the question is, how do you generate the right amount of force there? Obviously, you don't want the inside of your space station to be like the Gravitron ride where you can't even lift your arm and you're just pinned to the floor. Uh, You want to simulate something within the realm of 1G or one of these fractions of 1G that seem like they might be a tolerable living environment or at least help offset some of the effects of microgravity. And so you calculate how much force you generate toward the floor of a spinning structure Uh, by multiplying the radius of the structure by the speed of the rotation squared. So your two main variables are going to be how fast is the thing spinning around and how big is it. And since you're multiplying these together, the bigger the structure is and the faster it rotates – the more force there is toward the floor. And uh, unlike the problem I just mentioned about being pinned to the floor, actually mostly the problem that we're going to experience is how to generate enough force, not how not to generate too much.
0: All right. So we have the, the basic principle here. We've already mentioned some of the sci-fi scenarios, but what are some specific proposals? Well, uh,
1: you've got some basic shapes that you could think about, and then I'll I'll talk about how those shapes have been proposed in the history. Now, one thing you could obviously look at is something like the 2001 space station, which is like a wheel. Mm -hmm. So you'd have a donut, and inside the donut, it's hollow, and people are walking around on the uh, outer wall of the inside of the hollow donut. This would be the torus shape or the wheel shape.
0: And we tend to gravitate towards this because everyone loves a wheel. Like the wheel is such a such an, an excellent human symbol that yeah. of course we want to see it in space. Uh, you know, uh, magnifying our glory as a species
1: yeah well there 's that there 's there 's the flying saucer you mm-hmm. know we love to see a wheel that way uh, there 's the passage in Ezekiel about oh, seeing yeah. wheels, wheels, and wheels mm-hmm. now there 's also sort of the cylinder model right where you you 'd have the same effect where you 'd be moving on the outs or the inner wall or sorry beep. Now, here you'd have a similar effect where you'd be walking along on the inside of the outer wall of a spinning cylinder, and that would be a lot like the effects caused by the wheel. Another thing that's kind of interesting is the idea of something like a bolus or a or a tethered counterweight where instead just imagine putting yourself in a box mm-hmm. and then tying that box via a rope to an equally weighted counterweight – out in space, and then you just set the two of you rotating against one another. This would also generate a force toward the outer floor of the box. The, you know, the wall facing away from the rope would become the floor.
0: Okay. It's less elegant. And the, and the other thing about it is that it is called a bolus, which brings <laughs> to mind uh, various things uh, uh, flying out of uh, either orifice.
1: Right, so you're saying like if you had to perform the Heimlich maneuver on a fellow astronaut, they might cough up a bolus right of, of food they'd been choking on, or you're reading while you're in the bolus, yeah,
0: and then of course I've also read uh, I think I've read in like space uh, manuals about. Um, uh, uh, using the toilet in space, they refer to the fecal bolus. Oh, so, really? So the less the less you have <laughs> to, never to think that. about the fecal bolus or the traditional, uh, you know, bolus of food that your 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 your, your tongue helps form uh, before you swallow. Uh, yeah, you don't want to think about that when you're spinning around in a, a capsule in space. No, you don't, Robert. No,
1: you don't at all. Okay, so let's look at some specific examples of proposals for uh, for spinning artificial gravity stations and spacecraft throughout the years. And here I'm going to uh, cite a lot from a uh, specific chapter from that same book you mentioned earlier about artificial gravity. This would be the chapter on the history of artificial gravity. And that's, again, in that book by uh, uh, by Clement, Bookley, and Pulaski. So one of the earliest known designs for a space station with artificial gravity created by rotation comes from the Russian physicist Konstantin L. Tsiolkovsky, who lived from 1857 to 1935. And Tsiolkovsky was an interesting dude. He he was one of the pioneers of rocketry theory, uh, but he also was one of those futurists, right? He was one of these people who became obsessed with the idea of colonizing space. He wanted humans to colonize space. He wanted Earth domination of the galactic neighborhood. And one interesting story I found is that he at one point built a big centrifuge, to test out the effects of acceleration or artificial gravity on the human body. But he didn't use human test subjects. He tested it on chickens (laughs) and made the gravity chickens rest in peace. (laughs) Anyway, in his uh, manuscript, the title of which translates to free space in 1883, Tsiolkovsky sketched a hypothetical spacecraft and designed how you could spin a spaceship to give it artificial gravity on the outward facing walls. Another pioneer who would be Sergei Korolev, one of the great minds behind the Soviet space program. Uh, he was a really ambitious guy and in 1959, he was designing a trip to Mars. Oh, wow. In 1959, via a spacecraft called the Heavy Interplanetary manned vehicle. And note this was 1959. This was before Yuri Gagarin's first space flight in 1961. No human had been to space at this point and this guy's like, "All right, we got to get this Mars trip on the road." <laughs> wow. Um and anyway, this uh this spaceship that he was designing, the uh, HIMV, it would have a, a mass of 75 tons, a length of 12 meters, and it would have this cabin that was six meters in diameter. That's not a whole lot, but he, he did imagine that he would be able to use this ship as a rotating artificial gravity environment. Um, we can talk later about exactly how feasible – very small rotating artificial gravity environments are, the short answer is not very. Mm -hmm. Um, So Korolev's dreams were severely limited by material and political constraints. And during the 1960s, he was forced to focus more on attempting to sort of match Apollo scale space projects uh, and to work on weapons programs, of course. And so he also ended up proposing a a tethered capsule-based artificial gravity experiment, but it was never carried out. And Korolev died in 1966 and the project was shut down. But I mentioned this this tethered system, the bolus, right? Mm-hmm. You have two things attached by a tether and you rotate them against one another to see if you can generate a force. That kind of system was actually tried in space by the Americans. Ah. Now, if you'd asked me a few weeks ago, I think I would have thought that, that nobody had ever carried out large-scale artificial gravity experiments, on, or at least on the human scale, in space. I know, mm-hmm. they, you know they've centrifuged a few small animals in little contraptions. Uh, but I did not know there had ever been anything on the human scale. This experiment may count, though it's, it's a pretty weak attempt, but it was an attempt – i don't mean to say weak, like these astronauts and scientists didn 't know what they were doing, but they they didn't attempt all that much in terms of artificial gravity
0: right i mean it, it, as will become clear as you explain it it's still like anything you do in orbit is pretty ballsy yeah <laughs> so so this this definitely qualifies, uh, but to your point, it might it's not exactly a, a robust exploration
1: yeah so this this is the bolus method, and it was tested to a, to a very small extent during the the gemini eleven mission in 1966 or as the uh, The people at the time would say Gemini and it was crewed by Charles Pete Conrad and Richard Gordon. And while in orbit around the Earth, the the Gemini spacecraft was attached to a heavy counterweight object called the Agena target vehicle by – and that Agena target vehicle had on it a 30-meter tether. Now, at the time, we didn't have these really good complicated robotic arms or auto-locking cable jacks. Mm -hmm. To get these two objects connected via the tether, Richard Gordon, the crew member, had to leave the cabin in a space suit – and attach the tether manually. And apparently this job was grueling. Gordon got so overexerted doing it that his life support system was stressed and he was sweating so much inside his spacesuit that he couldn't see out of his right eye.
0: Oh, man, because I I imagine it's just kind of like pooling up, puddling up. Right, exactly. Like the the individual frozen in the the lake at the bottom of Dante's Inferno, you know? Oh, oh, man, yeah. Wow. I never thought about – I had really not thought about the, the like the, the sweating in space and blinding yourself with your own tears. Yeah,
1: huh. horrible. Uh, but anyway, yeah, sweating so much he blinded himself in his right eye. Anyway, he, he did manage to get the two spacecraft detached by the tether. He got back inside the Gemini cabin and they were able to close the hatch and repressurize. Uh, later, after they were connected via the tether, the two spacecraft undocked uh, from one another so they – they disconnected except for the tether and then they stretched out and pulled the tether taut and they began a rotation movement. And apparently it was hard to get this stable because they were what they called oscillations. I imagine that's like the tether being taut but then loosening maybe or oh, yeah. moving side to side. Um, the, there were oscillations in the rotation for the first 20 minutes or so and then after that, the rotation rate was uh, was increased. And the crew successfully managed to generate a tiny artificial gravity effect inside the Gemini 11 capsule – uh, supposedly one way they measured this is somebody dropped a camera and it went in a straight line toward the floor, toward the outside wall of the capsule that was away from where the tether was. Huh. So they measured it and figured that they had generated about 0. 0.0005 G Okay, <laughs> and, but that was with 0. 0.15 revolutions per minute. So this is a very slow rotation. It's not a huge construct. Um, So, I mean, that's a reasonable thing to generate. If they'd been rotating faster or if the tether had been longer, they might have been able to to create a more powerful effect. But anyway, this did prove the principle. And afterwards, the tether was released and the Agena vehicle was dropped to its orbital fate after about three hours. Now, moving on, uh, the, the authors also talk about how in 1928, there was this Slovene engineer named uh, Herman Potocnik writing under the pseudonym Hermann Nurdung who proposed a wheel-shaped space station with habitation around the rim of the wheel. And his idea was that you'd have this wheel that people would live in and then at the hub of the wheel, you'd have a power generating station. And this would have been 30 meters in diameter. It was called the wonrod or living wheel – And then in 1953 in Collier's Weekly, the German-American rocket scientist Werner von Braun uh, took this wheel-shaped model and updated it to be larger with a 76-meter diameter. And von Braun calculated that if you had a wheel 76 meters wide and it rotated at three revolutions per minute, you could simulate a gravity of 0.3 g, which is sort of close to the gravity of Mars, which is 0.38 g. And this would make it supposedly a good training facility for Mars expeditions. Hmm. But also, as we were talking about earlier, might be within livable tolerances for human life. You know, if you, if that's the best you could do in space, that might still be better than microgravity, better than nothing at all.
0: Right. I mean, without, without like actually doing any math on this, if you could make it to where – a really rigorous exercise uh, regime for your your spacefaring human, if it allowed them to like to cleanly break even against uh, uh, you know loss to uh, to bone and muscle, then it would be worth it, right?
1: Right. I, I mean, I'd imagine three hours of exercise a day in zero point three G does a lot more work than three hours of exercise a day in zero G.
0: Yeah and on top of that you're getting acclimatized to the the gravity that you're headed towards
1: totally yeah, yeah. and so there have also been some really interesting proposed Odd models. Like (laughs) in 1964, Dandridge Cole and Donald Cox proposed this interesting idea. So, Cole was really interested in the mining and colonization of asteroids. And one of his proposed ideas was that you'd capture a large asteroid that'd be about 30 kilometers in length. Uh, Ideally, it'd be an elliptical asteroid, kind of egg shaped, and you'd hollow out the inside of it. And then you would use propulsion to get the asteroid rotating along its major axis. And this would generate artificial gravity inside the hollowed-out asteroid. And you could sort of build a bubble city on the inside walls of the hollow space rock sustained by shining sunlight into the core with
0: mirrors. Uh, This was also explored on The Expanse, by the way. Oh, really? Do they talk about Cole and Cox? Um, I don't remember if they they actually – reference them in any way but mm-hmm. there's they discuss like the uh, the early efforts to reach these uh, various asteroids and to uh, create a spin uh, you know mine them out get them spinning and then you can build habitats inside them did it work or not work i mean in the in the novel <laughs> the novel it worked yeah. oh okay yeah. cool yeah the only thing that didn't work in the novels was the colonization of venus like that ended up failing oh. they're trying to create like floating cities yeah uh, Anyway, I imagine that could go really bad.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, so yeah, another weird idea. This, well, it's actually maybe not that weird because here you get something like it in two thousand one. A space odyssey would be a sphere. Yeah. So the American physicist uh, Gerard K. O'Neill proposed a rotating sphere that he called Island One, and this would be five hundred meters in diameter. It'd rotate once every thirty seconds, which he said would generate about one Earth g at the equator. Now, that's an important thing to consider. A rotating sphere, it would be different than a rotating wheel and that there would be areas you could access that would not have the same gravity, right? Mm-hmm. Like if, if you go to the equator, you'd get your maximum gravity. But then if you walk up to the poles of the rotating sphere, you'd basically be weightless. Right.
0: Because it wouldn't be a like a hollow Earth scenario where you would ideally have like the mass of the 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 crust. Like mass is not going to play a part in this. So yeah, you would you would only experience the the the, the maximum uh, G's at that equator.
1: Yeah. Because again, it's not actually due to gravity. It's due to acceleration. Right. It's due to your inertia against the constant angular acceleration of the rotating reference frame. Later, uh, that same guy, Gerard O'Neill, he proposed a larger model he called Island 2 and eventually this gigantic aluminum structure that came to be known as the O'Neill Cylinder. And this would end up measuring more than 30 kilometers long and 3.2 kilometers in radius. And you you do this by rotating a little over once every two minutes – which could create earth gravity uh, around the inside edges of the cylinder. And he envisioned this model would actually – it would be like an earth in space. It would contain natural landscapes. It would have forests and rivers and individual villages within.
0: Yeah, you'd have sunlight directed inside from external mirrors. I mean – crazy stuff there's a he had a book 1976 book the the high frontier human colonies in space mm-hmm. and the illustrations from this are just magnificent i know you included one in uh, in our uh, notes for this this episode and i'll try yeah. to include some on the landing page for this episode of stuff to blow your because these are just gorgeous gorgeous sci-fi illustrations that really capture that sort of r- retro optimism for humanity's future beyond earth
1: why, they kind of make me think of like Bruegel or something.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 these just landscapes, uh, you know, turned on their side and looped together to create this uh, this 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 internal rotating world.
1: Yeah, I'm not quite sure why, but this one illustration we've got included here, it it reminds me of uh, uh,
0: uh, uh, Bruegel's uh, landscape of the fall of Icarus. Hmm. I, though I don't think you're, you're allowed to invoke Icarus uh, when contemplating uh, <laughs> such titanic uh, feats of human uh, achievement and w- with so many lives at stake. It is, is a it?
1: temptation of, of the gods yeah. <laughs> to call down uh,
0: misfortune on our hubris. And I mentioned the, the, the lives involved because, uh, for instance, in, in, in O'Neill's Island 1 here, he's talking about tens of thousands of people living inside there in and mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a pl- living their, out their planet-free lives in a technological uh, simulacrum of their homeworld environment. Anyway, you, you'll, have to, you'll have to look at the images. Uh, truly beautiful stuff. Totally. And you can see in the images that
1: like the idea for the hollow asteroid, this would use huge windows and mirrors to shine sunlight inside for night and day cycles, which would be another thing that would be absolutely crucial if you're trying to fully simulate an Earth environment. Mm -hmm. Now, I guess it's finally time to talk about probably the favorite model, the thing that everybody usually goes to, which is
0: the Taurus. Yes, it's, it's the standard. (laughs) Yes. It is the standard
1: and it is the standard from Stanford, the Stanford Taurus. So this is really the answer to what's most feasible or at least what scientists have concluded in the past – so in 1975 NASA and the American Society for Engineering Education put together a study comparing submitted designs for spacecraft habitats and this was published by Johnson and Holbrow in 1977 and it looked at wheel-shaped designs, cylinder designs, spherical designs and NASA ultimately decided that a design submitted by Stanford students was the most feasible and this was the design that came to be known as the Stanford Taurus. So a torus is like we've been saying a ring, it's a hollow donut. And the Stanford Taurus would be a ring-shaped tube. So it's a tube like a cylinder, except it's a tube that goes around in a circle and connects on itself, a hollow donut. And so inside that tube... It would be 130 meters across. Now keep in mind that's not the diameter of the whole ring that's inside the tube that makes the ring. Uh, But the diameter of the the whole thing would be about 1.8 kilometers across and then it would be – the tube would be about 5.6 kilometers long. So that would be the circumference. And spinning the ring at one revolution per minute at these dimensions, it would generate about one G along the outer edge of the tube or Earth gravity. And so feasibly, you could build whole Earth environments inside. Like the O'Neill cylinder, if this were built, you could supposedly have running water, farms, woods, all that kind of stuff to make a, a space habitat as lovely and wonderful as our natural Earth habitat. And in the 1960s and 70s, NASA did investigate ideas for creating artificial gravity environments for upcoming space missions. There's one illustration I found that I thought was pretty cool. I, I don't know what the name of this is. I don't know if it had a name. I'm calling it the rod because it's also a rotating space station, but it's just a big rod. <laughs> now, it's not rotating <laughs> – it's not rotating, you know, like rolling as a rod. It's Like a baton? It's spinning. It's yeah, it's spinning a spinning a baton. baton. Okay. Uh, which I thought was interesting. So in 1969, the U.S. Space Agency concept drawing for for this space station was produced. And I think it's an interesting concept, but obviously it has, you know, so it's got less material investment than the construction of a huge wheel. But I would imagine it also has drawbacks. Like the farther you Farther along you are toward the ends of the rod, the more gravity you experience, right? Mm -hmm. Because gravity is a product of the speed of the rotation and the radius. And so as you go toward the center of the rod, you're shortening your radius. And as you go toward the outside of the rod, you're lengthening your radius. So at the center, you'd be weightless. So I can imagine maybe something like this would be a system where the end compartments are again the places you go for your daily workouts yeah. in Earth gravity,
0: the habitable zones, really.
1: Yeah, to keep mm-hmm. your your muscles and bones strong, and then the lower gravity environments would be, I guess, where you do other things. Maybe you would sleep there. You, you know, I don't know, store stuff there or yeah. something like that.
0: Or it's just where the captain gets to live. You know, right. and everyone else has to float and deal with it.
1: Uh, yeah, and and this does draw on conceptually something that we see in science fiction a lot of the time, which is that maybe not the entire habitable portion of the, of a spacecraft has artificial gravity. Maybe much of it is going to be a microgravity environment where you're floating around, but there's like one room that's a rotating drum or torus or mm-hmm. something that you can go into, and there's artificial gravity in that one contained environment.
0: Yeah. Now, in, in Peter Watt's uh, Blindsight, yes. uh, if I remember correctly here, there are portions of the ship that have artificial gravity via spin. Yes. But there are also – working and are they even sleeping in the uh, the zero-gravity areas? I think so. Tents?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think most of the ship, uh, if I recall, is going to be a zero-g environment where you're floating around. You have to propel yourself. And then there's one portion of the ship known as the drum that's mm-hmm. the gravity environment. Okay. So there have been a lot of these propositions over the years. You know, uh, NASA has looked at how, how to create space stations like this. But ultimately, these designs would be extremely expensive to produce and difficult to execute. Uh, A little bit more on that later. But another factor is that, you know, NASA scientists are looking at this and they're saying, well, a lot of the experiments we want to carry out are microgravity experiments anyway. Right? So, I don't know. do, Do we really need to spend all this money making the International Space Station uh, uh, an artificial gravity environment when people aren't going to be spending their whole lives there. They're just going to be there for a short period of time and then they're going to come back and they'll be able to recover some of the negative health effects.
0: Yeah. I mean, that is two two of the main points wrapped up in that. We don't really need um, artificial gravity right now. Not based, yet. Based on yeah. what we're currently doing. Yeah. And we're still – there's still so much to learn about the effects of microgravity on organisms.
1: Right. Now, there's also still a lot to learn about the effects of artificial gravity on organisms. Uh, Right. Now, if – that's with a qualification. It's – what you're talking about there is the specific effects of centrifugal artificial gravity because those are going to be somewhat different than just a pure, say, linear acceleration type artificial gravity that's going to be mostly indistinguishable from Earth. Um, in centrifugal environments, if you're in a spinning environment, depending on how small the radius is and how fast you're spinning, it, it could have weird effects. And I'll talk about those complications in a minute. But so to study those weird effects, scientists have conducted uh, experiments on animals like fish, rats, turtles. And generally animals seem to survive centrifuging in space just fine, though in systems with a very high rotation rate – Rats seem to have a problem with orientation, movement, and vestibular and motor coordination. So not a big surprise. But if you put them in a rotating centrifuge with a small radius and very fast rotation, you get some very dizzy and confused and uncomfortable rats. (laughs) But on the plus side, the centrifuging process does appear to stave off the wasting effects of zero-G. So if you put animals in a centrifuge like this, their bones and muscles do appear to stay strong. Now, just to turn to one more recent proposition of an artificial gravity spacecraft, uh, I thought we should look at real quick at the Nautilus X. Apparently, this is also the name of some vaping product, which is most of what the Google results are about. So <laughs> God help us there. But uh, the Nautilus X was a proposed NASA spacecraft that would contain a rotating centrifuge. It would have a, a torus ring. Uh, that was built to simulate partial Earth-G for the habitable quarters. And this spacecraft was designed but never built. And you can look up uh, images of the design on the internet. It's kind of interesting to see. I think the idea is that part of it here would have this hollow donut that would be rotating and you could you could transfer its momentum to a flywheel. and uh, And so it would be rotating around the ship and you could get in there to have some gravity time. And there have also been plenty of proposals over the years to add a centrifuge to the ISS in order to test artificial gravity. As far as I can tell, I don't think anything like that is still on the runway right now. I think these plans have pretty much stalled out. I I don't know if
0: you were able to find anything. I did not run across anything that that seemed actually active right now.
1: Yeah. But uh, there may be hope. So I don't know. If you're out there working on a centrifuge for the ISS and you think it might one day get up there, let us know.
0: Well, you know, the the turbo lift that I mentioned, like that uh, uh, news of it uh, uh, being... Funded. That's mm-hmm. just this year. So uh, it's possible that uh, there are some additional uh, uh, initiatives that uh, have been funded uh, right. in the past couple of months.
1: I so. hope they're not in competition. I mean, would it be Turbulator versus
0: Centrifuge? Oh, it's it sounds like a great battle. That's for sure. <laughs>
1: Now, I've mentioned several times the possible complications of a spinning artificial gravity environment, right? Mm-hmm. You can sort of imagine that there might be some that spinning around in a circle toward the floor is not going to be exactly the same as having a gravitational force pulling you toward the ground. It, it might in most cases, or depending on the radius and the rotation rate, be mostly indistinguishable. But especially at smaller
0: scales, there are going to be some weird complications, this is going to be the frozen from concentrate orange juice <laughs> version <laughs> of fresh orange juice. Yep. I think we should talk about the Coriolis force.
1: Yes. So, Robert, imagine you're on a Ferris wheel. Mm-hmm. You at home as well. Imagine you're up there. You're in the car on the Ferris wheel and you're just coming up over the top of the Ferris wheel. And you notice that a friend of yours is directly below you and you want to pour some Mountain Dew on their head. Okay. So you pour away. You pour the Mountain Dew to hit your friend. But you miss, and the dew instead hits the people in the car directly behind your friend. And this really shouldn't surprise anybody, right? This is just, duh. I mean, you're on a Ferris wheel.
0: Yeah, you're in motion.
1: Even though your friend was directly below you when you began pouring the liquid straight dra- straight down, the wheel was in motion. And by the time the liquid fell and reached the bottom, your friend had moved out of the way. And somebody else had moved in. Now, this is totally normal, totally intuitive physics on a Ferris wheel because we're generally looking at a Ferris wheel from the outside. But if you try to imagine riding a rotating machine like a Ferris wheel around in a circle in zero G in a closed environment – the rotation becomes your new stationary reference frame. You, the, the whole idea is that you're supposed to be able to forget that you're rotating and instead of ro- feeling rotation, just feel a pull toward the floor. Like notice how even though your section of the Earth is orbiting the sun and rotating around the Earth's axis, everything seems perfectly still, Right. This is your inertial reference frame. Mm -hmm. And since everything around you is moving at roughly the same speed in the same direction, everything feels like it's holding still. the same thing could happen inside a closed environment, rotating at a constant speed and direction in space. And so then the exact same trajectory we saw with pouring the liquid down from the top to the bottom of the Ferris wheel still applies. But because we're not looking in from the outside, it starts to look super odd, like You could throw a packet of dehydrated space lasagna straight at somebody's face across the torus from – or across the cylinder or whatever it is in this spaceship. And it would appear that even though you threw it straight, this thing you threw would suddenly arc over to the side. Mm -hmm. And so from your perspective, things would have this bizarre motion that wouldn't appear to make any sense at all unless you were looking at the ship from the outside.
0: Yeah, and uh, there's actually a point in Blindside where they reference this, where yes. one individual throws a, it's either a it's a, a ball or a fruit or um, is one it of those. an apple? Or something? I think it's an apple. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and it kind of goes wide. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and and this would be a problem now.
1: That might not be a big deal because you're like, well, how often do you need to throw something to somebody? Well, actually, if you watch people in the International Space Station, they're sort of tossing stuff to each other a lot.
0: Yeah, they're taking advantage of the
1: microgravity. But it gets a lot worse than just tossing stuff to each other Mm -hmm. because this also is going to affect just general movement. Uh, If you're at a small enough scale, like if your radius is small enough and your rotations are fast enough, this is going to be affecting how your body itself moves. And it gets even worse when you think about how it could affect, affect your internal body. Body systems.
0: Yeah, I mean you could you could find yourself in your chamber and w- no matter how how else the rest of you feels about your 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 artificial gravity scenario, you might feel a bit nauseous. The Coriolis effects on inner ear endolymph flow and on moving limbs creates a, a disorientation, nausea, vomiting and even can cause a loss of coordination.
1: Yeah, and this actually isn't all that Hard to understand, because you've probably experienced something like this in your life, if mm-hmm. you've ever been car sick while trying to read inside a moving car, in both cases, what's going on is that the fluids inside your body are sloshing around in directions that don't make sense to your eyes right. based on your environmental reference frame. So in a car, you're sitting in the car. You don't really feel like you're moving. You just kind of feel like, OK, I'm sitting here stationary in a car, mm-hmm. especially if you're reading or doing something with your eyes down. You're not getting the information about movement around in your environment. Meanwhile, the inside of your body, especially your inner ears, saying like, whoa, we're all over the place. What's yeah. going on? And that dis- this discontinuity or disagreement between the movement information supplied by your senses and felt by your inner ear causes this de- destabilizing sensation and makes you sick.
0: Now, one of the issues here that we keep coming back to is that the smaller your rotating environment, the more it is actually a carnival ride. Yeah. And that the larger it is, uh, the the better chance you have it smoothing some of the more um, undesirable effects out.
1: Exactly right. So if you uh, – I mean one thing you'll notice is that like – There are Coriolis effects in the rotation of the earth, Mm -hmm. right? But
0: normally – Yeah, it comes up in aviation. Yeah. Yeah.
1: If if you throw a baseball, Mm -hmm. if you are just standing around – like the Coriolis effect of the rotation of the earth is not messing with you too bad because the earth is huge. Mm -hmm. Um, If you you were in a much smaller rotating reference frame, it would be messing with you a lot more. I mean mainly on earth, you only see the rotation of the earth – causing Coriolis forces to affect large-scale movements such as like tides and weather patterns, you know, huge movements over long distances and long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so the same would be generally true in an artificial gravity environment that was rotating. If it was a very, very big radius and a slow rotation in this environment, the Coriolis forces would be much less likely to have a noticeable effect on your body and on the stuff you're doing. Another side effect, especially of a small radius uh, fast rotation system, would be in a rotating environment, you could have unequal gravity loading. That's about as Mm. weird as it sounds. So the centrifugal force you feel, like we were saying, is partially determined by your distance from the hub. So in a big wheel, this isn't – it's not going to matter very much. You know, the the percent distance from the hub between your head and your feet if the hub is hundreds and hundreds of meters away – is just – you know it's just not that much. If it's 10 meters away, then suddenly you might start to feel a significant difference between the gravity affecting your feet and the gravity affecting your head. Huh. And this could affect – it could lead to problems with things like circulation, but it would also just be disorienting and make movement difficult, partially negating the benefits of artificial gravity. Another reason that if we were going to make one of these things and it was to be effective, it would need to be very big. And that is the answer to one of our final questions here. At the end, you're going to say, OK, so we know basically that we could make some form of artificial gravity sort of work. I mean it might not be perfect, but this is basic physics. This is not something that's totally hypothetical. It could work. So why haven't we done it? The main issue is size and cost. For a spinning artificial gravity environment to be tolerable to human occupants, it would need to be pretty big – and to be that big, you would need lots of construction materials. Mm-hmm. And to get lots of construction materials into space, you need lots of rocket launches. And rocket launches are very expensive. They're getting cheaper, but they're still very expensive for the tons of materials you'd need to get up there to build this stuff. So it really, at this point, is mainly a matter of cost.
0: Right. And I mean, you can you, – basically, any uh, any space mission, any space initiative, I mean, they're going to be priorities and you can even if uh, if something like this is on the list it's going to get pushed down by other uh, initiatives
1: yeah yeah totally and i mean it, it, so building a one of these big functioning artificial gravity environments that would be something habitable generating something close to earth g could fit a lot of people on it you're you're probably talking about just a multi trillion dollar project mm-hmm. here it, it would just be so huge it's kind of not feasible for earth space programs at the investment levels they're encountering now Here's another problem. We got some limits on research, right? Ideally, if you're going to launch one of these things in space, you'd want to do a lot of preparation research up front to make sure you're not making a big mistake about what, what's the best thing to do in space. But on Earth, there's really no feasible way to perfectly test out artificial gravity concepts because on the surface of the Earth, you have to deal with the constant complications of Earth gravity. Yeah. So you can kind of try to simulate weightlessness and so you could do like neutral buoyancy experiments, uh, you know, where you're in water with a sort of balanced out buoyancy weight uh, ratio or you could do – you could get in an airplane and do parabolic flights to have, you know, 25 seconds at a time or so of weightlessness. But these things aren't all that helpful when you're talking about trying to test out an artificial gravity environment at a,
0: like, ship or space station size scale. Yeah, you really need an authentic zero-G, micro-G environment. And to get that, you have to go to to space. You have to go to orbit. Right. So
1: to really test one of these things, you essentially have to do it. You can't really test it without just making this thing and putting it in space.
0: Now, I guess the the good news is that it's kind of – to to, to sort of reference the old Mitch Hedberg uh, bit about – about an escalator, what do you call a broken escalator? It's uh, stairs, right? Is <laughs> um, like if the thing didn't work, you just turn it off and you float, in, I guess, right? <laughs> like it's still going to be serviceable on some level. And you can imagine that. Like I can imagine a scenario. Maybe they've even done this in a sci-fi where you have like a non-functional torus. A space station where people arrive and they're like, "Hey, what's with the walls? How come uh-huh. how come this thing doesn't work?" Well, it's it's it, we're working on it. We got to work out the kinks, so it's not fully functional yet.
1: Right? Yeah. Yeah, and people could complain. They'd be like, "Oh, but I'm I'm experiencing space sickness." And you'd have to be like, "Hey, look, it's not as bad as the Coriolis sickness."
0: <laughs> or it's a or it's a hotel where you have various rotating modules or right. rotating uh wings of the hotel." And they're like, "I'm sorry, all the uh, all the rotating rooms are taken. <laughs> yeah.
1: All our gravity rooms <laughs> yeah. are booked. Sorry. We've only got smoking rooms or
0: <laughs> <laughs> smoking and microgravity. That's it. Sorry." <laughs>
1: Uh, uh, But so, hey, we're saying why it's going to be a problem uh, to to build these environments. But we don't want to end on a downer because I've got something optimistic to say to revisit a comment we made earlier. If you're willing to limit your ambitions, artificial gravity starts looking a lot more achievable. If only a small part of your spacecraft needs gravity or if you're willing to settle for significantly less than Earth gravity – You've got a lot more options, right? For example, the rotating sphere compartment in 2001, A Space Odyssey. They say it produces only about the gravity of the surface of the moon. That's not a lot, but it might be enough that you can sort of jog Mm -hmm. like the character does. Uh, Basically, it's better than nothing. Things still fall toward the floor even if it's not quite like being on Earth. And we mentioned some of those tests earlier, tests on human subjects in the 1960s in these parabolic flights to basically determine what was tolerable or acceptable to people. You know, and they found out that 0.2G is actually a lot better than 0.1G – so there's like a pretty steep uh, drop-off point about what's acceptable somewhere in that range. Mm-hmm. That normal human activities were mostly doable starting at about 0.2 g. At about 0.5 g, once you get to half of Earth gravity, subjects felt about as sure of their movements as they did at 1 g. Okay. So once you're halfway there,
0: it's basically good enough to do your movements and uh, you know maybe even sleep better at night. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So there you have it. Artificial gravity. Uh, not to be confused with uh, anti-gravity. That's an entirely different uh, podcast there.
1: Now, how many times did we accidentally say anti-gravity in this episode today?
0: None that I know of, but there could be dozens. <laughs> just, <laughs> how many are we going to catch later? I kept catching myself doing it in the notes. I kept, I kept typing in um, anti-gravity and I'd have to go back and it was like, ah, oh, not anti-gravity. Because anti-gravity is sort of, sort of a – even though it's fun in science fiction as well, it's sort of a dirty word in scientific uh, research. Yeah, um, there are other terms that you would use, uh, but but again, that's a, that's a topic for another time. If you guys want to discuss anti gravity, uh, we can do that at a later date.
1: Anti gravity—it's actually fairly simple. It's commonly known as jumping or,
0: <laughs> and lifting. <laughs> all right. Well, don't spoil it all. Don't spoil it all, Joe. All right. So, hey, if you want to listen to more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you want to explore past episodes, and we have a bunch of them, many of which uh, deal with space and space exploration, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. our our spinning mothership uh, there. And you will find uh, Abort It uh, posts, blog posts, uh, podcast episodes, videos, links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. We're on all of those. Hunt us down, follow us. And if you listen to us on on, uh, Apple Podcasts or any other uh, podcast uh, system out there, uh, leave us a nice review if you have the ability to do so, because that will uh, help tweak the algorithm in our favor and allow us to continue to bring great episodes like this to your ear holes.
1: Hey, and if you want to get on that mothership with us and get a little bit sick, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. (laughs)